Hey, welcome. My name is Glenn Lundy. Super excited to be launching our new Breakfast with Champions podcast. Can you believe it? That's right. The Breakfast with Champions podcast has finally arrived. This is your opportunity to get motivation, education, and inspiration every single day. And ultimately, your opportunity to get a seat at the table, to be a fly on the wall, to listen in to some conversations between some of the most amazing superhumans from around the planet. We're talking about people that are doing the things you know you can do, that have reached some of those levels you know you can reach. We've got celebrity interviews with people like Tiffany Haddish and Grant Cardone, Lauren Rittiger. We've got specialists in areas like Capital Ventures, right? Or wealth building, wealth management, real estate, all kinds of incredible conversations. And what's amazing about the Breakfast with Champions podcast is you're going to be able to tune in, listen in. They won't even know you're there, right? It's just like you're, you're, you're listening in on all these incredible secrets of some of the most successful humans from all around the world. You know, when we launched Breakfast with Champions, we had no idea of the power that it was gonna have. We had no idea of the collaborations it would create. We had no idea that we'd be able to connect humans from England and Australia and Saigon and America, of course, all together in one room having powerful conversations that elevate everyone in the experience. Listen, if you like these episodes of Breakfast with Champions, do me a huge favor and let us know. We would greatly appreciate it. We pour into this. You're going to get five to six hours of content every single day, Monday through Friday, five days a week. You can keep coming back. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We'd appreciate it. Drop your comments, share your thoughts and your reviews. It mean the world to us if you would do that. And in exchange, we promise you that we will always create a space, a safe space where you can come. You're not going to get politics here. It's not going to happen. You'll never see any type of division in here. It's actually exactly the opposite. We have a bunch of different people with different belief systems, different upbringing, different backgrounds. We've got people from all different ethnicities all coming together. But the one thing that we share is everyone in this room shares the same heart. And it is a heart to elevate you, to encourage you, to inspire you, and to help you become the absolute best version of yourself that you can possibly be. So if you would, do us a favor, write those reviews, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends. We're going to be here, and we hope that you will be too. Enjoy Breakfast with Champions. You'll see there in the notes that you can skip forward. You can move back. If you need to pause it for a minute, you'll now have that opportunity to do so. We do record these daily on Clubhouse. We have a Breakfast with Champions Club there, or you can follow me, Glenn Lundy, if you'd like to see those rooms, if that's an app that you enjoy. You can always come in and tune in live, or of course, just sit back and enjoy right here on the podcast and anywhere your podcast can be found. It is such an honor and a privilege to be able to spend this time with you. I know that there are a trillion places you could have chose to be. You chose to be right here with us on Breakfast with Champions, and that means the world to me, and I absolutely stinking love you for it. So with that said, we are excited to launch the new Breakfast with Champions podcast. Thanks so much. Ben, Miss Daisy is here. She is a workplace futurist, an equity strategist, an inclusion revolutionary, 
She just wrote a book called The Inclusion Revolution. And Daisy, I'm so excited to get to know you here today on Breakfast with Champions. So I'd love to start this conversation. Daisy, how are you this morning? Hi, Glenn. Uh, I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, thank you so much for being here with us here on Clubhouse. Where are you coming in from? I am in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, okay. All right. Brooklyn, New York. Are you from that area? Um, no, I, I was actually uh, raised in the Dominican Republic, um, okay. but I have lived in both uptown New York, California, and for the last five years now in Brooklyn. Beautiful. Uptown New York, California, and now you're in Brooklyn. So we just listed off some of your accolades. So I kind of want to start there, then maybe we'll work our way backwards a little bit, get to know you a little bit better. Uh, but when it comes to inclusion in the workplace, You've worked, obviously, in the corporate world. Like, how messed up is it really? That's what I want to know, Daisy. <laughs> how messed up is it really? Let's get real here. Come on. Oh, Glenn. Um, I mean, this could, this could take us the whole hour. Um, <laughs> you know, we, I've been at this for nearly two decades. And what I'll tell you is that it doesn't look that much more different than it did when I started. Um, these are, you, we still enter workplaces that were not designed for women, people of color, non-normative people. Um, and you know, if you think about the summer of 2020, um, when every company nearly in the world made every proclaimant possible about racial equity, I bet if you look around in your organization, it still looks very different. It's, there's still not more BIPOC employees. There's still not more BIPOC leaders. Um, women are still struggling actually a lot more since the pandemic. Um, we still have a ways to go to create workplaces that work for everyone. Why do, why do you, why do you, why do you think with, with the attention on it, right? We can all agree that there's attention on it. People are talking about it, mm -hmm. discussing it. Why do you think it hasn't, why, why has it not moved in the last 20 years? You know, I, I think most fundamentally leaders and, and, and those who have the power and access to create change in organizations, they've been unwilling to acknowledge the barriers that exist for historically excluded employees. And, and, I, and by historically excluded employees, I mean women, people of color, LGBTQ, people with disabilities. And, you know, and that's led them you know, to not make the changes necessary to dismantle the inequities that both damage their day-to-day -day experience, but also limit their potential for growth and advancement in the organizations. Do you think that this is intentional, Daisy, or is it a, a blind spot? Uh, do they just not know what they don't know? What do, you, what do you think? I think it's a combination of that, Glenn. I think, I think fundamentally what, what stops people from driving the change that they need to do, it's, it's a combination of fear. You know, mm. all of us, we're afraid of messing up, of saying the wrong thing, of not doing enough, or for some, it's of afraid of being on the losing end of what happens when you create equity in workplaces. And, and we don't spend enough time reflecting on what we fear and why and what it would take to get to the other side of this. Um, so yes, there's unconscious bias. There's so much research and pretty much every company offers training on unconscious bias. But some of it is not just implicit. Some of it is real bias and discrimination that happens in the workplace. And it's a combination of all of that um, and this fear that paralyzes, paralyzes us from you know, transforming workplaces because it's work. 
right? It's, it's a lot of work to rethink our language, to rethink our processes, to rebuild our policies. It's a lot of work. And I think people, there's a lot of false starts and a lot of stops to this work. A lot of false starts and a lot of stops to this work. You know, Daisy, it's got me thinking. Uh, I've, this this month, I have a, um, a a group of people, and we 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 pick a different book each month, and we uh-huh. and we read these books. And this month, this month, we're we're focused on a book called Outliers by Malcolm uh-huh. Gladwell. Have you ever read that book? Yes, I did. Excellent book. Yeah, excellent book, right? And in that book, it talks about uh, Korean Korean Airlines uh-huh. and how they were having. Uh-huh tons of plane crashes, right? And they couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And ultimately they had a new CEO, CEO uh, come in and they realized that there were cultural things within the Koreans and the, the level of authority to where the co-pilots would not jump in, right? They wouldn't jump in and, and save the day when the pilot was making mistakes. And so they literally had to go in and teach all of the Koreans English because the English language is a little bit different and then ultimately give them this this kind of authority. So the reason I bring this up and maybe this is a controversial comment or question that I'm going to ask you right now, but I think we need to really get into the to the weeds with this stuff is the change for Korean Airlines, a lot of it had to happen within the culture itself, the Koreans oh, yes. themselves had mm-hmm. to make some changes in order to make this happen. Do you feel or believe that that might be applicable to this as well, to where the, let's just throw, let's just say the, the white guy country club leader isn't going to be able to affect this change, that we have to do it ourselves, those of us, us in, uh, of color, the women, the, the minorities, that we've got to make some changes in order to make this happen. What would you say to that? I think, I think it takes all of us to do this. So I, I, I don't disagree that, that we, the, you know, the, those who have been othered and marginalized have to drive changes, but fundamentally we've been trying to drive these changes for a long time. And for many of us in organizations, we lack the power and the privilege to actually be the ones to decide what's the new policy to decide what's the what's the new approach i think that there is change that has to come from the top down from the bottom up and from the middle out and and that's why my book is is designed for managers precisely because i believe that if if managers were equipped to do this work and displayed the courage to drive this change i think we could we could we could drive meaningful change we could see the change in experience not just in in policies and processes, but just in the experience of what it's like to walk into a workplace where you feel seen, where you feel heard, where you feel that you belong, where you feel that you have a sense of psychological safety to ask questions or even to fail and pick yourself back up and try again. And and that that really does, Glenn, require all of us to be part of this. Um, and I think that where we are right now in in this stage of you know post the great resignation, the pandemic, there's a lot of talk about employees having um, so much power to drive change in organizations. And, and I'm here for all of that. I think that that's all true. However, I think it's not only going to be driven by those who are the workers in the organization. The change has to come from the folks who are leading these organizations, who are shaping culture. 
because culture is about why people do what they do. And, you know, and the, and leaders and managers are the ones who set the tone for that. In the current, I know that there are quite a few uh, CEOs and, and, and leaders in this room right here, people that have their own companies and people that they work for. Where exactly are the current diversity trainings failing? And then let's get into what you believe is the real roadmap as far as reflecting, visualizing, acting, um, those things that you talk about in your book. So where are the current diversity trainings failing? And then let's get into the roadmap. Sure. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot about diversity trainings in, in my book and, and have been for many years. I think fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with a diversity training. Let me start by saying that because I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been misquoted and folks are like, oh, you know, you're, you're saying that, you know, we shouldn't be training and equipping folks to do this work. It, over the course of my career, I've found that the real barrier to building workplaces that are diverse and equitable and inclusive is not figuring out what can we do, but rather, are we willing to do it? And that's not something that gets that gets you know delivered in a training, right? That's not something that I'm going to teach you today, Glenn, and you're going to be you know you're going to all of a sudden find the will to do this work. What what happens in most organizations is that they often misattribute workplace inequity to the character of an individual or of individual actors, the so-called bad apples, rather than to broader structural factors. And so, you know, as a result of that, you roll out trainings that are meant to fix employees while dedicating relatively little attention to what may be a toxic organizational culture, for example. It's much easier to pinpoint and blame an individual when a problem arises. And when companies face crises related, for example, to racism, the knee-jerk response is to fire the individual involved or replace them rather than examining how the culture licenses or even encourages discriminatory behavior. So I'm not against interventions and trainings. They can serve as a valuable foundation for learning and uncovering, for example, how to reduce bias and prejudice in hiring and performance management decisions, which is where we see so much persistent bias limiting the capacity and opportunity for individuals. But, but there's, there's a need for a systemic solve here that one training alone won't do it. And it's, it's, as I said earlier, it's these false starts and stops where you deliver unconscious bias training and now you, experience, you expect everybody to understand it and to, be, and, and to check their biases. Well, no, this has to be part of a, frankly, a lifelong process of unlearning and checking and rechecking. And that, that sustainability is what most organizations lack. Mm, yeah, I'm 100% with you on that, right? Because it's, it's not a light switch type thing. It's not mm -hmm. something you turn off and you turn on. It's a, a, a systemic, which is the right word. Um, it's a systemic problem that, mm -hmm. that, that takes a lifetime. It's really about impacting the next generation, right? Creating better spaces for the next generation and the next generation and the next. And that is a long-term mission that you have to be willing to commit to. I love that. So let's talk about this roadmap that you have uh, put together, this roadmap that you believe is really the path that we need to be on and that you're teaching in your book. So I know you break down you know, the importance of reflecting, visualizing, acting, and persisting. Let's break that down for those in the room so they can maybe take some actionable steps to start today. Absolutely. You know, over the over the years, I have tested and developed different models 
for dismantling inequities across organizations, industries, and geographies. You noted it at the beginning, I've worked in media, I've worked in tech, I've worked in finance. And you know, I've, I've seen what works and what doesn't. And what I've learned fundamentally, Glenn, is that best practices and research are starting points. There are no silver bullets or shortcuts to this work, but you have to start somewhere. And Inclusion Revolution, the, my book, which just came out yesterday, you know, it's the, the beginning of it, the early stages are intended to help you get clear on your truth and the truths of your coworkers. And, and that's what I call the reflect model, right? So my formula is reflect, visualize, act, and persist. And that first section of reflection is where you get clear on what, how you and others experience. And, and I call that, that stage, um, the, the building readiness stage. That's, that's where you're building readiness, that your willingness and your capacity to address where the disparities and the challenges are in your organization. And that's done through deep interrogation of assumptions, of fears, of organizational practices, policies, and systems that, you know, that, you know, you take for granted, but that create those spaces of opportunity or lack of opportunity for others. Um, and then the next stage, you know, once you figure out how do you experience work, how others experience work, and what those structural causes or root causes are of, you know, for example, your inability to hire more women or more black people or more Latinos. Then you spend some time visualizing what could be possible for you and your organization. What is it that you're trying to achieve? Often in organizations, we jump to the end game right away, but we don't spend enough time thinking about what are the outcomes I want to see and what would that look like? What would that feel like? How, what would be the energy in the organization when that happens? And once you spent time listening and hearing and assessing, that next stage is acting, right? That's when you act on what you've heard and what you've learned. That's when you operationalize these practices. That's where you, you, know, where you focus on intentional action regarding how you hire people differently, how you onboard people differently, how you assess performance differently. And you test and you and you learn from that. And that final phase of that um, framework is persist. And I and I tell everyone you've got to be willing to persist when obstacles appear because they will, because there will be resistance to this work over and over again, sometimes from the most unexpected places. And and again, the failure point in this work has been the lack of willingness to persist and to keep going despite you know, moments where, for example, the economy improves and then everybody stops thinking about diversity and inclusion until the next crisis happens. Um, you know, every, everybody seems to be happy. Our employee surveys are giving us great data. We don't really need to invest that much in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, you stop investing in it and all of a sudden your culture begins to erode again. So it is, it is not, not feeding into these false sense, this false sense of stability and okayness where you're not really, again, spending that time and energy deeply interrogating what workplace you have and who is it really working for? I think that's a powerful, a powerful path, Daisy. I think that's a powerful path. I think that that's a, a good path that could apply to a lot of, a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. Taking the time to really reflect, visualize what you want, take those actions and then persist. I will persist <laughs> until I succeed as they say. Hey, um, Dora Maria, if you could help, or, or Daisy, is that link that's at the top, is that the best link for someone to get your new book, or should we put a different link up there? Do we, uh, um, there's a different link. That's my website. If you go to my website, you can go to books, 
and there that leads you to um, uh, how to find my book in just about any outlet possible. Um, uh, so yeah, if you go to my website, go to the pages for books and that will lead you there. Okay, perfect. I'm going to have my integrator, Ms. Dora Maria, help us get the link directly to the book. And I would love it if all Thank of you. you would jump in there, support. I didn't realize it had just come out yesterday. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> it's my birthday. I, I, I just found out that there's such a thing as a, a book birthday. So that yesterday was my book birthday. <laughs> so we had a book birthday yesterday. We'll all sing book birthday for you here in just a little bit. But we had a book birthday yesterday. Everybody go grab a copy of the book. Let's put Daisy on that bestseller list where she belongs uh, 100%. She has put in the work. She's put in the 10,000 hours. She is the expert in this space. And the world needs more of this, plain and simple. The world needs more of this. See, Daisy and I align. We do different work, but we align, right? It's about giving everybody a seat at the table. That's really what it is. It's about yes. giving everybody a seat at the table. It's the exact same work. And so, Daisy, I'm going to reset this room real quick, and we're going to keep going. This is Breakfast with Champions, the Millionaire Breakfast Club, your opportunity to get a seat at the table. We are currently interviewing Miss Daisy Auger Dominguez, the Chief People Officer at Vice Media Group, formerly Google's Director of Global Diversity and the Vice President of Talent Acquisition and Diversity at Disney slash ABC top 25 most powerful woman in the world per people magazine and espanol now this room here we are here monday through saturday from 5 a.m until uh two o'clock in the afternoon actually um, from 5 a.m till two in the afternoon bringing you motivation education and inspiration and opportunities to connect with amazing humans just like daisy so that you too can get a seat at the table so incredibly powerful. All right, Daisy, with that said, oh, and for those of you new to the room, please make sure hit that square, hit that arrow, share this out. I really appreciate the 150 shares that we've had so far in this room this morning. Really, really powerful stuff. Okay, Daisy, let's keep going. Um, obviously, people have heard the word and there's, you know, cancel culture, right? Mm -hmm. Cancel culture is kind of running rampant. My question is, how do you start this conversation? If you're in an organization, you see these inequities are happening. There's maybe fear that if you say something, do something, you know, there's a lot of fear around it. With cancel culture mm -hmm. going on, you might get fired or <laughs> you might get excommunicated from the rest of the pack or the group, right? So we, we, we see these things happening all over the place. So talk to me, how do we, how do we, how do we initiate the conversation? What's the right way to lean into this if maybe our leaders don't even quite recognize it or see it at this point? Absolutely. Um, and thank you so much because you know the cancel culture goes goes in so many ways. Um, and and I have to say, and I have I, I speak about it in my book, I actually loathe the term cancel culture, um, mostly because I think it weaponizes the opportunity to derail really meaningful conversations about how change can happen, and you know, and and I think that you know, I I I ascribe to the to the practice of calling people in with grace, with patience, um, really taking the time to try to explain to someone and understand what happened in the moment, 
um, when something was hurtful, when something, you know, when something, when someone misstepped or, um, or, or did something that was damaging to others. Because I think those courageous conversations, and they require courage, they require compassion, they, they can really try, truly drive change. Now, also to be clear, I, you know, I, I think that there are some people that should be canceled and that there are some behaviors that should, um, but, but we're operating in, out of this fear of being canceled and not, you know, and, and, you know, we're, we're so afraid of retribution that we are not creating enough spaces for reconciliation, for really, truly seeing each other as humans and really, truly seeing each other as partners in this work. Um, and so a lot of what I ask people before they even are, you know, entering this work is, you know, to lead with curiosity instead of anger, right? You know, ask yourself, what is it that you want to address? What is it? Is it a systemic behavior? Is it a person? Is it a practice? What is it that you're trying to solve for and, and how? And, you know, what are you trying to achieve? And then once you figure that out, then, you know, focus on what's the specific behavior or practice and, you know, and how do you enable it to not escalate? And, you know, and how, you know, who is the person or, you know, or the leader that can help drive that change? Because we, sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of being able to explain that to someone in a way that they will understand. Um, and, you know, and then think about, you know, where or how these moments can make you or the other person you're speaking to defensive. You know, uh, you, whose feelings are you pri prioritizing? What's holding you back or could hold that person back from admitting responsibility, right? Is there, is there a place for learning and listening that's different there? How do you reflect on the difference between impact and intent, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot throughout my book. There are a lot of questions in my book like this, because I do think that we don't spend enough time reflecting on what is it that you're trying to solve for and how. And, and do you need to be a witness in a moment? Do you need to just be helping someone? Do you need to be solving for something in a different way? And I, and I think that if, if many of us took the time to spend that moment trying to think about what am I truly trying to solve for? Is it a person? Is it a system? Is it a process? And then devising the strategies to address that. I think we could you know, achieve the workplaces that we've, you know, that we've all been hoping for. And to your point, um, you know, bring more, not just have a seat at the table, but bring more seats to the table. Amen. Amen. I love that. Lead with curiosity, right? Lead with curiosity. And as, as soon as you... Hey, listeners, if you enjoy listening to Breakfast with Champions, we can bet you care about your daily routine. Do you want to know the secret to the perfect routine? It's the perfect morning. Glenn has written a free ebook called The Morning Five. Five simple steps to an extraordinary morning. If you can transform your morning, you can transform your life. Head on over to themorning5.com to learn more about the five ways you can change the way you start your day. Said those words. So Daisy, I have eight children. I have eight, <laughs> Lovely. I have eight babies, uh, six daughters and two sons. Mm. And as soon as you said lead with curiosity, I immediately went to my kids. Right? Yes, because they mm -hmm. they ask questions out of curiosity, and sometimes the things that come out of their mouth, you're sh like it's a little shocking sometimes. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> but because I know they're coming from an inquisitive space and not an accusative yes. space, mm -hmm. I respond with a with with a smile or thoughtful. Like we were able to have conversations because I know it's coming from a curious space. So that that 
really profound, I think. I, I love that you just shared that. That's that's one I will not let go of. Thank you for that. Mm, Daisy, thank you. how are you connected to all of this? Where you you don't spend 20 plus years in this area and in, in, in this field and become the expert unless there's some deep rooted connection to all of this. And I'd love to hear a little more on your story. So how are, how are you connected to this work? Where did that come from? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I always tell folks and it's, you know, we all have an origin story and, you know, and mine, mine is, you know, I was born in New York city to teenage parents. My father's Dominican, my mother's Puerto Rican. Um, and I was raised by my paternal grandparents in the Dominican Republic. Um, and I studied at an international school. I was a, I came from a working class family, but they invested in my education. I went to a school where I grew up with kids from all over the world, Glenn. My best friends growing up were Danish, Chinese, Israeli, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, you name it. Um, and, and so I grew up with, a, with, with this strong sense of national identity and heritage and difference all around me. And then when I was 16, I moved to the US and after spending most of my formative years as part of the majority of this you know, little island that I grew up in, all of a sudden I became Hispanic. I became one of, you know, I was othered instantly the minute I moved to the US. I was put in this box of seemingly monolithic people um, for which most, you know, most of the folks that I, you know, I, I engaged with very early on seemed to think that, you know, I needed to be what they thought I needed to be, which you know, which was coming from this group of low socioeconomic background, low educational attainment, you know, criminal backgrounds, you name it, whatever they were watching in the media, that's what they expected from me. Um, and I struggled, I struggled deeply with that, having had a, a vastly different experience. Um, and, and so I decided to pursue understanding how that operated from an educational perspective. And at on my undergraduate degree, I, I received at Bucknell University, I studied international relations and women's studies. I, you know, then I went on to get my master's in public administration and public policy, where I focused on race, class, and gender, right? Before we were talking about intersectionality, I was deeply committed and learned about learning about this. And then I entered the workplace. And Glenn, you know, I, my first career was as a credit risk analyst at Moody's Investor Service. And, you know, within weeks of being in the workplace, I, I saw how women, people of color, LGBTQ employees were quietly sidelined and marginalized. And so this, this work comes from a very personal place because I didn't just see people being sidelined and marginalized, I was sidelined and marginalized. And, you know, and, and particularly in the early part of my career as the only Latina, usually the youngest person in most rooms, I often fell prey to what Kenji Yoshino has coined the term covering, the practice of downplaying who you are to survive in an organizational context. And you simply can't perform at your best when you're constantly modifying or playing down who you are, including your appearance, your body language, your accent. Um, it's, it's incredibly taxing. And you know those early experiences were really what inspired me to be the person that wanted to go to the black MBA conference, the Asian MBA conference, the Hispanic MBA conference. I was, I was that young analyst that wanted to bring in different voices and, and create different workplaces. And eventually over the course of my career, 
you know, people started noticing. And, and then I had this opportunity to lead and launch Moody's first diversity and inclusion function. And that was my first introduction to HR after nine years, you know, in the professional sphere. And, and I, and it was as if I found, you know, my purpose in life. It was this, this is when I realized this is, I'm here to be a change maker and I'm, my role is to change from the inside out. Um, and that's, that's what's led me to do this work. And I have dedicated my career to removing the roadblocks that make workplaces unwelcoming, unequal, and often unsafe to women, people of color, LGBTQ, people with disabilities and other non-normative people, because I know firsthand the marginalization and loneliness that these employees experience. Daisy, I think that's, I think that's incredible, right? I think that's incredible. And I love that you were injected in an environment where these things didn't exist so that mm -hmm. you can see how clearly it is. Uh, it, it gave you that clarity, right? And I always say uh, there's so much beauty in the blended, right? Me yes. being mixed, half black, half white. I spent, you know, I grew up in, in Flystaff, Arizona, and there there's quite a bit of diversity. There's four mm. different Indian reservations that exist there. Um, not, not, uh, not as many uh, African-American people, but that, that, that has changed over the years. But I just spent time in a lot of different circles because I didn't know who I was, right? Mm, so uh -huh. I spent a lot of time in different places. And I just think it's so beautiful. Our differences, the things that make us unique, I find it beauty, beautiful when we blend it all together, right? Uh -huh. And so I love that you're on a mission to help other people see the beauty in that as well. Who would you say empowered you? Was there someone along the line, a mentor, a coach, someone who opened the door? Who, was, there, was there anyone that you could kind of point to that empowered you and helped you on this journey to get to where you are today? I've had so many people who have done so, Glenn, and, and at different points of, of my career. And, and we all need those folks, right? Um, you know, I had um, you know, I had Bart Osterveld and Adam Whiteman, who I've, I've always called as my first white male allies when I was at Moody's, who helped me find my voice. And, you know, you know, they they were they were the ones who, you know, created space for me in meetings where no one else would create space for me, who coached me on, you know, on how to be a, you know, a strong and and thoughtful analyst, but 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 did it in a way that recognized me. Right. That wasn't about. Let me tell you how to let me fix you so that you can operate in this workplace. It wasn't a, it, it wasn't that. And so I had I had I had those people in the early part of my career. And, and then I've had mentors throughout Lisa Quiroz, Luis Miranda, Fred Terrell. You know, they, they have been you know, I call them they're, they're my mentors and sponsors, but they're really sort of these angels that come into your life and, you know, and put your names in, you know, in hats that you don't even know exist. Right. Um, that you know, advocate for you in rooms that, you know, you would have never been invited to, um, you know, and, and people, frankly, that have checked me throughout my career and have told me when I've been too impatient or when I've, you know, when I, when I haven't, you know, just paused enough to, to look at what was happening around me. Um, I have had so many along the course of my career and they have been people of color. They have been white. They have been, I mean, you name it, they have been leaders. They have been peers. Um, you know, I, I have a group of girlfriends um, who are really just my rock. 
Um, and they're the ones that I go to when I'm wondering, you know, even still now as a C-suite executive, um, you know, every once in a while, I, you know, I have these moments of, wait a second, was I, you know, was, it, was, was that because I'm a woman of color? You know, I, you know, are we not, you know, the work that I'm doing to, you know, ensure that we're creating spaces for others, you know, am I, am I now being the one that's being pushed away? You know, I have, I have those moments too. And I have so many peers and mentors and colleagues that I can go to um, throughout. And I feel incredibly blessed for that. That's amazing. And I think for everyone in the room, <clears throat> the reason, part of the reason I wanted to um, ask you that question is I just wanted to remind everyone in the room that, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's just, it just takes you, right? <laughs> like you empowering others can, can create this track, this path that can lead to, to what Daisy's doing, where she's now helping millions of people around the world, which Daisy, I just went on, went on and grabbed a few copies of your book. Uh, oh, thank so you, Glenn. I'm excited to get that and uh, be able to read it um, myself and then also hand it out to some of the people in my um, company. I think it's really, really important work that you're doing. So with that said, where are you going from here, Daisy? What is your big vision of the future? What does it look like? And how, uh, how, how will you be, where will you be on that path of the vision that you have of the future? Oh, goodness. Um, well, my, my vision is very clear. I firmly believe that we can build radically inclusive and equity-minded workplaces where leaders and team members are empathetically anti-racist, where creativity and innovation comes from everywhere, where all aspects of our identities are represented equitably at all levels across organizations, um, and where safe, fair, and dignified work is the norm. Um, you know, where wellness is built into our DNA. All of these, all of these elements, Glenn, that we have so long hoped for uh, in our workplaces. That's what I'm here to help build support. Um, it's why I wrote my book. It's why I, I speak and support and mentor others to do that. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to keep on doing this work, um, advice, and and everywhere else that you know that I have an opportunity to do so. And and I, I do it because it's not just to me. It's all of us doing this work. So I think that when you know part of the reason why I wrote my book and the title of it is Inclusion Revolution is because revolution is about the change that we can all drive together. And, and that's, that's what the future holds for us, Glenn. A, a, a future that is about change for workplaces that work for everyone that we all get to build. I love it, man. I, I absolutely love it. And I will be cheering for you. I am going <laughs> to support you in every way that I possibly can. And I hope that everyone else in this room uh, will do the same. We have about six minutes left. And I have selfishly absorbed all of this time to ask my questions, but I wanted to leave a little bit of space. If you're here on the stage and you have a question for Miss Daisy, go ahead and flash your mics. I see Miss Lolita Walker. Go ahead and jump in here, Lolita. We'll start with you and we'll get a, get a few questions in before we turn. Thank you so much, Glenn, and a welcome to the stage, Daisy. What a powerful conversation. 
Um, I am Lolita E. Walker, and I also was in corporate for almost two, well, almost two decades. And when I leave to start my personal and professional coaching and consultancy, one of the things that I vert, like vividly remember is sitting at the leadership table and mm -hmm. making decisions and not everyone recognizing or having a perspective of diversity inclusion and why that was really important around the table. Mm -hmm. So my yeah, right. So my question to you today is really for those folks who are in this room who are still in a nine to five. And the question to you is for those folks who want to get to the person making the decisions, what advice will you give to them to be able to leverage the power of their ideas to create through the organization? Because what um, we don't want to, because what we don't want to do is forget that the people at the top have been there for like thirty or forty years. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, I love that. Thank you, Lolita, for that question. Um, you know, I mean, I, and I think that's that's the crux of it, right? It's that change comes from everywhere in the organization, and and but change is hard. Change in the status quo is hard. What what we've seen in the last two years is. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's dramatic changes in workplaces because employees have no longer, um, you know, are, are no longer quiet on these issues. So I think that there is tremendous power in exercising your voice. And I think that those of you who want to drive change in your organizations, I always tell people, I don't spend my time and energy on the folks that I know I'm never going to convince because I need to spend my time and energy on those that I know I can convince, right? The ones that are, you know, on, on the margins trying to figure out what to do, the ones that are trying to figure out how to be better managers, better leaders. Um, and a lot of it is about, you know, building relationships with individuals because a lot of us just don't know what we don't know. Really well-intended, well-educated, um, kind people walk around every day without, you know, without knowing the unintended impact of their actions um, and the things that they do or don't do. So I always say, start with building relationship and, and helping others see what they don't see, right? We often ask who is in the room when we're thinking about diversity. And Dr. Defina Lazarus-Stewart has this amazing um, framework that I, I often use when I'm, when I'm trying to help people understand even the difference between diversity, equity, and inclusion, because we also tout these terms around Lolita, and there are a lot of people who just don't understand what we're even talking about. So, you know, we need to spend some time really coming to an agreement and understanding of what does diversity mean to you? What what you know? What frightens you about it? What excites you about it? What about your identity? You know, have you held onto that is so important to you? And what are the things about your identity that you've actually let go of because you've learned differently and done differently? If if we were to spend time having those conversations about what's your truth today, that would be different. If we were asking questions, you know, not just who is in the room, but who is trying to get in the room but can't, right? Instead of asking questions like, have everyone's ideas been heard? How about whose ideas won't be taken as seriously because they're not in the majority, right? The, the, when we ask questions differently and when we help people see things differently, all of a sudden, you know, it's like you can't, it's like you can't unsee what you've, what you've seen. And sometimes we just need to create those spaces and those opportunities for, um, for shared understanding. And we spend so much time in our pain and in our frustration that we, we forget sometimes there's actually people that want to help. They just don't know how to help. I hope that's helpful, Alita. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yes. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Let's have, we have time for one more. Go ahead and flash your mics. Go ahead, Ify. 
Hi, um, good afternoon or good morning. Um, thank you so much, Glenn. Great question, Lolita and Daisy. What a pleasure. I'm actually late for my next thing because I just <laughs> had to stop because your voice, wow, it hit me so much. I've um, ordered the audible of your book and I just thank um, wanted you. to say thank you so much for sharing um, so many layers. And one thing, well, there were so many things that you said. And um, for me, I'm, I'm in a space where I often get asked as being black, female, pink hair and autistic. I, I am the person they go to on the days when they really need to bring in diversity inclusion. So um, <laughs> I take a lot of time thinking about how I'm going to show up. And I think I love what you said, which really hit me and reminds me of things that I've been through. I loved how you said how we have to kind of temper ourselves and reduce ourselves mm -hmm. and how, so um, now that you, my question to you, and it's a very selfish question because I really want to know the answer because I'd love to grow from it. Now that you know that you don't have to temper yourself, you don't have to reduce yourself. Are there times when you still do because it makes sense or do you just go help guns blazing and step into your power every time? Or do you ever strategically think this wouldn't be the, has there been a time when it hasn't been the right time to, you know, truly um, step into the power that you have now? Oh my goodness, absolutely, Ify. Thank you so much for that question. And, um, and it's something that so many of us feel. And I, I'm very honest about that. E even in the C-suite, I have to temper what I say sometimes I have to I have to be measured um, you know even as I have desperately tried to bring more voices to the table and have more diversity that's of, of thought experience and background around me you know there are times when you sit down and you know as a person of color and you watch racialized tension happen all around you and and you and you and you're trying to figure out you know from years of conditioning um, but also from you know the the place that you hold when do I step in? when do i explain you know that's a racist comment when do i explain when you say that i feel so much so little and so you know misunderstood um and so so yes i am constantly and i think many of us are constantly doing those equations in our heads how how much do i step in how much do i step out what you know what you know how much of myself do i bring into this conversation how much uh, do i hold back i still experience that every single day what's different is that i have gained confidence over the years of doing this work and i and i so and i try to surround myself with people that i know even if it's just one more person that i that i know that i can you know just be me and say okay that's just isn't right um and and for me i measure it by making sure that i leave every conversation having shared my truth sometimes more softly than others but having shared my truth so that there's a moment of a, a shared understanding where people at least around me um, are given that moment to reflect on what they've done. And sometimes I do it in the moment and sometimes I do it quietly. And it's those call in moments where I say, you know, in that meeting, we were making this decision about this business and nobody called out that there were a lot of racialized tensions about the fact that it's a black business or that it's a, you know, it's a black owned business or, you know, or, you know, or we just, you know, we completely quieted someone's voice um, you know, a woman's voice in this group, but we let the men talk freely and we didn't question it. Um, so there's there's moments to bring people in. And sometimes it's in the meeting in front of everyone where everybody can have an aha moment. And sometimes it's after the meeting when you can just have a quiet moment of, let me explain to you how I felt then and how that could be different. I, I hope that's helpful, Effie. 
<laughs> wow, that was powerful. Thank you so much for just sh shining the light on that because yeah, I, I get it. I, I've been in those gaps and sometimes I reflect back and say, was that a loud moment or was that meant to be a quiet moment? Or was that quiet moment because I was not wanting to be exposed? Yes. So thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you for just speaking up. I'm getting your book and I'm so touched by you. Thank you, Glenn, for making this conversation available. I I'm done speaking. Lovely to meet you, Daisy. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Absolutely. Great question. And Daisy, it has been incredible getting to know you and having you here in this space. Uh, thank you so much for the work that you do for us. We appreciate it so very much. And I know the impact that it'll have for generations to come. Uh, you're really doing some incredible, incredible stuff. It's, a, it's just spectacular. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate you and everyone from listening today. Ladies and gentlemen, connect with Miss Daisy. Go buy her book, Audible, hardback, hardcover, however you want to get it, right? However you want to get it. Go grab a copy of Daisy's book. Let's help support her and all that she's doing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, unmike, go ahead and make some noise. Thank you. Thank you, Daisy. Thank you for joining us on Breakfast with Champions. If you want to catch the live version, you can follow us on Clubhouse and listen from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, Saturday 6 to noon, and Sundays with our 111 Sunday service. Make sure you're keeping up with Breakfast with Champions and getting yourself a seat at the table.